Salford. 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 No, no. Salford. Like full of soul. soul. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it's a town that just seems like it's just full of soul. It's full of soul. (laughs) Unless you're thinking about the Latin sun. Yeah. Oh. Maybe. Maybe. I don't don't, don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Another another transatlantic confusion. Yeah. It's not. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely. I put a little bit of Texas twang on it. Salford. No, it's. Soulford. Soulford. <laughs> so I apologize. Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. Welcome to part two of Joy Division. Oh, we're getting into it. So when we last left Joy Division, lead singer Ian Curtis had just joined the band, but at this point in their history, they were still going by the terrible name Stiff Kittens. <laughs> <laughs> and we're still a fair distance from adding the last key element to their lineup. But as it is with most great bands, Joy Division had to cycle through a number of iterations before they reached their peak form, and the band never once stopped working towards their goals in the entire time they were together, and they have our intense respect for that. Now, in a place like Manchester in the late 70s, just existing as a working class person was difficult, and that went double for a person in a band trying to play music while also surviving on what little wages they could make. As far as day jobs went, bassist Peter Hook worked in the Ship Canal, lead singer Ian Curtis worked in civil service, and guitarist Bernard Sumner worked for a British animation studio coloring in animation cells on shows like Jamie and the Magic Torch, which actually had a pretty fun theme song in the vein of the kinks. Let's hear it. It's a boy and his dog and his magic flashlight. Oh, that's <laughs> Tor- what it is. Torch. That's a, the, the British yeah. call flashlights oh, torches. I get it. I get it. <laughs> now, those day jobs didn't pay a hell of a whole lot, which meant that the stiff kittens didn't have a lot of options as far as rehearsal spaces went. As such, they improvised like they always did and always would do with varying results. Well, the thing is, they did have a lot of options. (laughs) The problem was that they kept getting kicked out of places for being too loud or just too bad. (laughs) (laughs) You're too bad. Too bad. I can't listen to you anymore. Yes. So they found a string of pubs all over Macclesfield and Sulphur to to rehearse in. I mean, these pubs had a a second floor that was usually empty during the day. You know, Mm. if you guys, if if you remember when we went to London, they kind of had like a little upstairs. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And sometimes the owners would allow like bands to rehearse there. Uh, So that's what Ian, Peter, Bernard and Terry would do. Mm -hmm. Like, but sometimes they would like approach like a new pub. They would go there to talk to the owner and they're like, oh, you're a band. Well, why don't you rehearse in the main room and you can play your songs and the regulars will love it. (laughs) And the guys are like, oh, no, I already know that's a bad idea. That ain't going to fucking work. You wouldn't like us. (laughs) But it was above this one pub in Weist where they could practice and write their songs together. You know, they put songs, like, I think they put around, like, seven or eight songs that pretty much ate the Sex Pistols. Yeah. Like, all, like, that. their idea of any punk song, really. The Sex Pistols and the Damned. Yes. Were, but, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Those were the two bands that, yeah, Joy Division was just ripping off left and right. So, Peter wrote the lyrics to a lot of these songs that, they were usually about girls who broke his heart. Yeah. You know, they were very rudimentary. They And the music, they were, they were very, like, one, two, three, four, fuck off, bullocks, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, a machine gun, you know? The songs were 
terrible. They were yeah. very jejeune. Yeah. You know, and, and they didn't play very well together at all, especially with Terry trying to help out with the drumming. It all sounded awful. <laughs> And Howard and Pete from the Buzzcocks, they wanted to help out the guys and, and try to get them a gig. So they sent down their manager, Richard Boone, to go see them at the rehearsal. So the guys did their seven, eight songs for him. And Richard said, OK, well, we'll give you a gig to open for the Buzzcocks, but you need to write new songs. And the band was like, OK, which songs? And he's like, all of them. <laughs> OK. All right, sure. So they wrote six new songs really quickly. And they were still crap, mm -hmm. but they were a little bit better. You see, it's all part of the process. Bernard, uh, he used a good analogy in his book about it. It's, it's like apprenticing as, as a bricklayer, right? Yeah. They build a wall to see how it's done. They look at it, see what's good or bad about it, then knock down that wall, and then make a better wall to make a house. Oh, that's cool. A house of songs. Meanwhile, Terry just kept taking drumming lessons, <laughs> just trying to figure out. He, he figured like, oh, well, you don't get a good drummer by then. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'll know. And that's what Terry thought. Terry was wrong. Yeah, Terry was very wrong. Well, I mean, they were also all uh, working off of like bare bones equipment, like Terry's drums, the drum set that he was working on. They said it was like made of coat hangers. Yes. Like <laughs> and it would just always keep moving far away. So he had to bring it closer. Yeah, he didn't. He never figured out like the drum rug. You got to have a drum rug. Otherwise, you're, you know, but every time you hit the drums, especially the bass drum, it just moves further and further and further away from you. <laughs> <laughs> but even though Terry was doing his best to be the drummer the band needed, he was still terrible. So the band started putting out advertisements to find someone who could play support for what they were trying to do. Yeah, they had to audition a bunch of drummers, which obviously proved difficult. Yeah. Like they got a lot of nutty people again, like when they tried with, for their singer. But one guy was promising. Uh, they actually said yes to him. He was a college student. and But then after a while, they kind of decided like he didn't fit in at all. They're like, you know, on second thought, this is not a good idea. And so they had to go tell him he wasn't in the band anymore. Oh. So Bernard and Peter we're driving over to his college and Peter said, wait, let's make a stop. So he, he went to a store and he bought a box of chocolates <laughs> and then got in the car and told Bernard, okay, let's go break up with him because <laughs> he thought that would be a good idea. He got him like a double layer box of milk tray chocolates, like assorted chocolates. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like of those, course. Like yeah, yeah, the, the, grandma, the Russell Stover grandma <laughs> yes, candies. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they get there and they hand it to him and saying like, listen, uh, you know, Bernard said like the, they didn't have the guts to tell him that they didn't want him. So they made up uh, like that the whole band wasn't really working out mm -hmm. and they were calling it a day. <laughs> They're like, I'm moving to Yemen. <laughs> you know, like the whole band yeah. is moving to Yemen. And the guy was totally confused and especially with the chocolates, but he was he was okay with it. Yeah. But Peter said uh, there his version was that uh, he said that. You're too good for us. <laughs> you see, we're okay, and you're just really good. Yeah. And so you shouldn't be in the band. <laughs> it's it's us. It's not you. It's us. It's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm not ready to be in a relationship right now. Because <laughs> they thought that's how what how you break up in a band. Yeah. <laughs> At least they were sweet about it. Yeah, they were. Yeah. But as it went time and again with punk bands of this era, and how it usually goes with starting any kind of a band. Guitarists and wannabe singers are a dime a dozen, but solid drummers are extraordinarily difficult to find. And since the band had their first gig coming up in just a few weeks' time, because back then it was customary to book your first gig before your band was fully formed... Was it really? <laughs> apparently! <laughs> according to most of the stories that we've told so far, yeah, it's like, well, oh yeah, we'll figure it out. We'll get a drummer, but by the time we get to the big gig, it's, only, it's two weeks away. It's two weeks, plenty of time to find a drummer. 
And so Stiff Kittens went back to Pete Shelley of the Buzzcocks for advice. Mostly, he told them to overhaul their image, which was a directive the band, of course, bucked up. And most of them showed up to that first gig looking like Nazi tank commanders. It was somewhat of a coincidence, but not really. But even outside of Pete's advice, the band knew their name was terrible. Rightly pegging that the Stiff Kittens sounded like a cartoon version of a London punk band, the boys cycled through a series of terrible names like Gdansk and Pogrom. I'm sorry if you're in a band named that. <laughs> But, yeah. We'll get to it. That's not even the most offensive name they ever came up with. I know. Including their name. <laughs> Eventually, though, they settled on Warsaw. Partly because it sounded cold and austere, but mostly because they all liked the song Warsaw off David Bowie's Low, which also ended up giving some pretty heavy clues towards the band's eventual sound. It's a six and a half minute song that builds. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, it takes time to get there. Yeah, it takes it takes time to get there. Uh, you know, low. It's back to being my favorite Bowie album. Oh, really? You know, overtook Station to Station again. No way. Yeah. So now it's back to low. Huh? What a wonderful journey. <laughs> now, as the show was approaching, the band was increasingly nervous because they still hadn't found a drummer. But just days before the gig, they found Tony Tabak, who ended up playing the show completely unrehearsed. <laughs> Just show up at this time. Yeah. <laughs> Even so, Ian Curtis walked on stage and corrected the show poster that advertised them as Stiff Kittens. He said, we're not Stiff Kittens, we're Warsaw. And the band began their slow walk into history. Yes, they all started playing at the same time, and it all sounded like Bill and Ted. <laughs> it was just, you know, like the whole they get better. Yeah, yeah. That, that was the thing. I mean, like, they get better. I mean, a lot of these early shows, I mean, we're talking about them because they're very important. But back then, some people were like, this is a good time to go to the bathroom. <laughs> They don't have it together yet, yeah. you know? So, yeah, the first gig ever uh, was May 29th, 1977 at the Electric Factory with the Buzzcocks headlining, of course. Of course. And, yes, they went on first. They hit the stage wearing those uh, German military <laughs> you know, commander outfits that made them look like the guys from the village people, really. Peter had even grown a mustache. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they sounded very new, very uh, grade school talent night show. That they, they were all over the place. Uh, Peter and Bernard both said that they remembered nothing about that gig, other than they were just terrified yeah. right before going on. But uh, as you told me, fortunately for them, that there's a review of that <laughs> of that gig. Oh great, how yeah. how lucky. Yeah, yeah. There is a review, and surprisingly. Uh, it's not very kind because, uh, you know, as any band's going to tell you, like, it's not a good idea to play a new song at a gig, even a new song, if it isn't well rehearsed. Like, I learned that once where, I, you know, our band, we came up with a new song the night before and then tried playing it at the gig the next day. And uh, uh, the headliner helpfully told us, don't ever do that. But what if you add, oh, man, you should have been there last night. <laughs> We did. And they said, don't ever do that. (laughs) (laughs) But playing your first gig without even rehearsing with your drummer, especially when you're all amateurs, is a bad fucking idea. Well, they figured no one's going to (laughs) remember. They did remember because it is now on record. But, you know, (laughs) I do think that it's helpful to anyone starting a creative pursuit. Everyone starts somewhere. Mm -hmm. And this is where Joy Division started. Stiff Kittens, a.k.a. Warsaw, whatever they're called next week, rate zero even on my Mary White House odometer. The guitarist must be some refugee from a public school. The neatest thing about the bassist is his headgear, and the singer has no impact whatsoever. By the fifth number or so, they can just about put together a coherent riff, but I don't think even the most demented headbanger could get off to this. Someone tells me it's their first gig, so let's pass over the rest. Next, please. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's what I remember in the early 2000s when uh, everyone was reading Pitchfork and they're like, man, when did music reviewing, when did music journalism get so fucking snarky? Like, are you fucking serious? This has been <laughs> forever. This is, forever. This this is, is how forever. it's always been. It's always been snarky. <laughs> now, Tony only stayed for about six gigs, but with a halfway decent drummer in the band, Warsaw got to write actual songs. The first of which being the fairly straightforward punk song, Guts. Let's hear where Joy Division started off. Oh, yeah, that uh, Warsaw that he came in when he comes in and screams, Warsaw! Yeah. They did that on the first show after he said, we're not stiff kittens, we're Warsaw. Ian Curtis came on, he screamed the Warsaw, but in the middle of it, tripped and fell. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that kind of sets a tone for for the rest of the show, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. 
Meanwhile, Terry Mason was still trying to find his place in the band. He wasn't drummer anymore, so he settled into the role of band manager, even though he was as bad at business as he was at actually being in the band. Terry keeps failing upwards, okay? (laughs) So since he couldn't learn drums or guitar, he figured... Yes, I'll be the manager, right? <laughs> I'll be the guy who pulls the strings, the, the suit in the corner office, the man upstairs who makes things happen. Pull the strings! Yes, exactly. And the guys were all like, okay, Terry, great. Well, first thing you got to do is that you got to call up a bunch of places and try to get us gigs. And Terry goes, great, I don't have a phone. <laughs> You don't own a telephone? No. No, I don't own one at all. I do have a favorite payphone, though. No, Terry. No, Terry. You need to make a ton of calls. How about you do it at your job? And Terry's like, well, yeah, I I could do that. Except my manager has a sign off on each phone call I make on company time. (laughs) Damn you, Terry. Okay. Okay. Then you're the roadie. All right. All right. And he's like, I'm head roadie? Like, yes, yes, you, you are your director of assembly, sound engineering, and transportation. <laughs> there you go. That's your job now. And when we're busy, you can also be the manager. <laughs> Sometimes. All right, all right. Sounds good. <laughs> but even though Tony Tabak, the drummer, only lasted six gigs, there were still memorable moments. They were fucking consequential six gigs. On May 31st, 1977, Warsaw played a club called Rafters in Manchester, supporting the Heartbreakers, fronted by, of course, Johnny Thunders. Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers. Great. Great. Fucking wonderful. And they're always the band that when you read any sort of, you know, biography on the punk days, Johnny Thunders comes up again and again and again. Hell, we were watching fucking Chits Creek last night and there was a Johnny Thunders joke. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, But, you know, and you always ask like, well, why don't, why aren't. Johnny Thunder's like Heartbreaker songs like why why aren't the Heartbreakers talked about in the same breath as like the Ramones, you know, or the Talking Heads? Heroin. Oh, that's <laughs> what it is. <laughs> very simple. There's a very simple answer. Heroin. Yeah. Yeah. And they had a fantastically bad heroin problem. And this show that they did with Warsaw was no exception. Okay, so uh, Stiff Kittens, now Warsaw, they did their first gig, and it's two days later, okay? <laughs> and they're opening for Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers, the, the band who were on, they were on the Anarchy Tour w- with the Sex Pistols, Yeah, remember? And and, and remember uh, when we talked about uh, Sid and Nancy in, in the Sid and Nancy episode, when we talked about Nancy going to England to try to find uh, Jerry Nolan from the Heartbreakers and date him? This is all happening at the same time. Oh, so this is the tour that fucking... 
Nancy Spungen is going to. Oh, wow. She's on her way to England. <laughs> and also like the heartbreaker. This is when the heartbreakers introduced heroin into the British punk scene. It didn't exist <laughs> yes. before this. This is a, a highly consequential tour. <laughs> anyway, so Bernard, Peter and Ian, they were super pumped to meet these guys because they they, they love New York dolls. They, they love the heartbreakers. And when they got to the dressing room, they saw the heartbreakers all laid out on their seats, like just practically passed out yeah. just mouth open just like you know flies buzzing around them <laughs> they, they were just laying there for hours looking hungover or like drugged up on something uh it kind of hit warsaw like in the reality gut of what these guys the heartbreakers were about now yeah. at this stage in their career while warsaw they're like the fresh-faced new kids all hopped up over a, a gig yeah. just any gig and those guys just taking naps yeah not giving a shit not showing up to sound check exactly well it became more disappointing when they had to wait for hours until the heartbreakers actually got up (laughs) and finally did their sound check like it took all day because also the road crew that 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 was on tour with them were just as wasted (laughs) or hung over and everyone was just moving so incredibly slow (laughs) so finally Warsaw gets their sound check and then they head over down the street to the fish and chip shop, you know, just to get something to eat. And who do they run into? Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers <laughs> in line ahead of them, <laughs> ordering their food slowly. <laughs> so when the Heartbreakers finally went on at the end of the show, they were just as big of a, of a mess than they were that afternoon. And yeah. they played their biggest song, uh, Chinese Rocks, like three times to a pretty disappointed <laughs> In sparse audience. No, no and, the, and that when you say they like, I, they actually played Chinese rocks three, three times. times. <laughs> because it's like, well, we should just do it again. Because <laughs> this is the one I know. <laughs> but you know what? Warsaw did pretty well opening yeah. up for them. Yeah, they did great. Uh, they, they got their first encore ever that night, uh, which gave them hope since it was Tuesday night that they did that show. And they just started being a band last Saturday. <laughs> so that was very, yeah, that was, that was a way to keep moving forward. It really was. I mean, and that's, uh, An encore is highly encouraging to a band. And so, spurred on by their first ever encore, Warsaw played Guildhall in Newcastle on the invitation of a female-fronted group out of rural England who ended up releasing one of the most impressive UK punk singles of 1977. By penetration, here's Don't Dictate. It's great. And, you know, it's not quite as uh, forceful as Oh Bondage Up Yours, but it's fucking great still. Yeah, it's pretty I mean, close. Yeah, and they're a fucking, uh, they're country kids. And they're from rural England, the Aww. countryside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Penetration. They're great. Check them out. 
Oh, cool. All right. Yeah. So penetration, we're like, yeah, come come to the show in Newcastle. Right. And and it was actually the adverts were also on the bill, too. It was great. And it was their first out of town gig. Uh, but since, no, you know, none of Warsaw had nobody had a car to get there. So Peter had to ask his friend from school, Danny, if he could drive them to the gig because Danny had a van from his job working at a furniture moving company. Mm-hmm. So it's perfect. The only thing is the van up front had uh, only three seats. Yeah, it's a moving van. Yeah. So, but that's the thing. Danny's driving, and there's only two seats, which means uh, the rest of the band has to go in the back, <laughs> in the back of a seven-ton Luton van. Like a, it's like almost like a giant U-Haul truck. It's a huge. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is a huge U-Haul. It's a fucking <laughs> furniture moving van. <laughs> that meant like most of them had to sit in a dark box, just bracing themselves every time the van made a turn for almost three hours. I, I think it was Ian, Peter, and Tony that I think they were in the back while Ian's like looking through a small like slit <laughs> a hole looking out being like I think we're lost because I don't know where we're going <laughs> but they finally made it to the show and when they drove in with their seven ton van it, it was clear that they had the biggest van out of all the other bands yeah even bigger than the PA van hired for the whole festival <laughs> so they parked next to the other vans unloading all their gear for the show and then they just you know like you know open up the doors of the giant van and they all jump out holding this tiny little amp <laughs> They're like, they told us that we can borrow it. (laughs) (laughs) And then they played. They sounded terrible. Yeah. uh, Because they never used borrowed equipment before. Uh, And and they had no idea, you know, what they were doing or how to make it sound right. And at at the end of the long night, their driver, Danny, was too drunk to drive. So they had to spend the night in the van with no heater because they had just enough fuel to get home (laughs) the next day. But they got paid 20 pounds. Not bad. Not bad. Not too long after that gig, Tony Tabak, who had been dealing, quote unquote, dope on the side. I don't know. When they say dope, I don't know what they mean. Do they mean speed or weed or what? I don't know what dope means. It could be a little bit of everything. Could be. But anyway, Tony Tabak got righted out by rival dealers because Tony was undercutting everyone. <laughs> and that's apparently how, I guess that's a better way of dealing with it than just fucking shooting him. And after his posh parents bailed him out of jail... Tony was out of the band and out of the scene. You can't be a punk anymore, Tony. No. Following Tony's departure, Warsaw recruited their own Pete Best, drummer Steve Brotherdale. Now, nobody ever really liked Brotherdale, partly because he was a braggart who liked to tell people that he had previously toured America opening for Kiss. <laughs> you never know. You do? Well, oh, I think you do know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Have you ever I left Manchester, Steve? Have you ever left? Oh, yeah. Went to America, opened for Kiss for a home. No, was, he was an asshole. They called him Steve Big Mouth. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, they must have thought he was all right at first to have him in the band, but it didn't didn't take long until he irritated everyone. <laughs> uh, he, he was a loud, obnoxious guy, and they hated how he always brought his girlfriend around and treated her terribly, which rubbed him the wrong way, too. Yeah. And he was always that guy, like, on the phone, on the payphone, be like, I'm talking business, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm making my deals, I'm moving forward. And, like, everyone around him is like, okay, it's fine, like, quiet down. Yeah, you it's, don't it's, have to show <laughs> off. Yeah. He was very full of himself. But, you know, a decent drummer is hard to get, and uh, it was either him or Terry. Yeah. So, you know. You choose Steve. (laughs) (laughs) But even though Steve was kind of a what my British friend Phil used to call a bellend, um, bellend, think of a a dick. Okay. Think of the end. Uh Uh-huh. Looks like a bell. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. now can you uh, pull your pants up? I'm good. I got it. <laughs> Thank you. But even though Steve was kind of a dick, the band would still get shit done when Steve was in the mix, although everyone was still, at this point, trying to figure out their place in the band. For example, at Steve's first gig... Ian Curtis tried channeling Iggy Pop for the first of many failed attempts. Oh, yeah. That was one of his fake. He was trying to be Iggy Pop so much, but he couldn't ever fucking pull it off. At this point, all channeling Iggy Pop meant was that Ian drank too much and rolled around on some broken glass. And all that resulted in was his wife having to fucking stitch up his leather jacket. No one liked it. (laughs) It wasn't cool. It was just like, what is he doing? (laughs) But with Steve in the band, Warsaw decided it was time to go into the studio to cut a demo because that was the only way to get gigs outside of Manchester. And after pulling together enough money, they recorded the now highly bootlegged Warsaw demos. <laughs> it's a little rough but i can hear him yeah i can hear him you know and that was the thing is that you know they did sound pretty similar to a lot of punk bands at the time but it was obvious they were doing something new like they were going in a different direction they were developing their own sound but steve brotherdale decided to leave anyway he didn't see it even though everyone else did brotherdale thought that another manchester band called panic Panic spelled with a K had a better chance than Warsaw. And after Panic fell apart, Brotherdale joined another band called V2, which also faded quickly. But the kicker came in the late 90s, when Peter Hook dropped by an English McDonald's for a quarter pounder, and who should hand him the burger but Steve Brotherdale, who'd probably spent 20 years kicking himself for quitting the band that would become Joy Division, who would eventually become, of course, New Order. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's so, a, huh? That's uh yeah, cuz in the by the late 90s, yeah, like New Order was established as one of the biggest British bands to ever exist. But back to the 70s, with Steve Brotherdale out of the band, Warsaw began placing ads around Manchester, and the only person to respond was the man who would help change rock drumming forever, Stephen Morris. Oh, I love mm-hmm. Stephen Morris. Yes. He's great. Now, Stephen Morris's story is an interesting one because somehow his road to punk and eventually Joy Division is kind of a microcosm of the British youth's evolution from a more hippie subculture into something a lot darker and, in our opinion, a lot more fun. Really, what Stephen Morris's story proves is that for some of these kids, it wasn't about changing the world like it was with, say, The Clash, you know. These kids didn't want to be in, quote, the only band that mattered, nor did they necessarily want to just sneer in the face of society like the Sex Pistols or smash the system like Crass. Instead, all some of them knew was that regular British society wasn't for them. Punk was just where they happened to fit in. And Stephen Morris was one of those kids. Yes. 
Okay, Stephen Paul David Morse. <laughs> that was his full name. Stephen Paul David. Cool. Yes. Uh, born and raised in Macclesfield with his younger sister Amanda. His dad was a salesman who sold kitchen and bathroom equipment to, uh, to all those uh, new developments around Manchester, which which meant they were doing very okay. Yeah, they were uh, very More okay. More than okay. De- were... Definitely upper middle class, I yeah. would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Stephen, actually, he went to King's Grammar School uh, just like Ian did. Uh, but they never they never met. They never ran into each other. Although yes. Ian was one grade above. Yeah, but but Ian did remember. So he was like, oh, yeah, you're that kid that got kicked out for uh, drinking cough syrup, huh? Yeah, and <laughs> we always know that guy. <laughs> everyone knows about that guy. Yeah, everyone And now knows you're that in my band. <laughs> this week's No Dogs in Space is brought to you by Every Plate. Eating should be easy, but that's not always the case. Between shopping, prepping, planning, portioning, and keeping everyone safe along the way, you've got your work cut out for you. But it doesn't have to be that way with EveryPlate. EveryPlate is a meal kit service that provides easy-to-follow recipes and pre-portioned ingredients to take the stress out of dinner time. And before you say, hey, wait, aren't meal kits kind of bougie? Remember that EveryPlate is 58% cheaper than any other major meal kits out there. And the food is awesome. Recipes come together in about 30 minutes, meaning less time to what to cook for dinner and more time spent enjoying good food with your family. I have personally fallen in love with the Vietnamese chicken and rice bowls and the fact that every plate now offsets 100% of their carbon emissions makes me love my recipes 100% more. And I'm not just telling you this to brag about my dinners. Right now, our listeners can get three weeks of every plate meals for only $2.99 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering the code NODOGS3. Remember to enter the code NODOGS3 on everyplate.com to get three weeks of every plate meals for only $2.99 per meal. Every plate, America's best value meal kit. As far as music influences went, Stephen Morris had, I'd say, an underappreciated sway over the overall sound of Joy Division. His big Blow Your Mind album was by one of the most influential bands that nobody talks about, but that makes them no less important. That band was Hawkwind. Yeah. And when you listen to their 1971 album, In Search of Space... They, they can't find it. <laughs> <laughs> you start to see why Joy Division sound started changing once Stephen Morris brought his influences into the band. Hawkwind, you know, I've been listening to a lot of Hawkwind lately, mm-hmm. but I can't help but think that song kind of reminds me of like, you know, when you put your face too close to a fan. <laughs> 
it's like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you take the psychedelic out of that song, and it's unknown pleasures. It's the <laughs> <laughs> it's the first Joy Division album. Yeah, and Stephen loved Hawkwind. You know, when he was fourteen, he begged his parents if he could go to a concert with his friends, but they wouldn't let him uh, at all. They're like, well, you know. You're too young, but eventually his dad did make a deal with him. He said, okay, Steven, you can go to a concert if I take you to one of my concerts. And the whole family has to go. <laughs> and Steven's like, deal. And he runs <laughs> over to his copy of Sounds Magazine to look at listings, and, and he found one for Hawkwind. Hell Perfect. Yeah. Hell yes, yeah. I love Hawkwind. <laughs> at the Free Trade Hall on March 17th, 1972. So he gets tickets for him, his 11-year-old sister, and his mom and dad, who at the night of the show got dressed up like they were going to like a fancy gala, like a <laughs> nice party. And, and they're like stringing their pearls up and everything. And remember, this is 1972. This is, uh, at this point, the bassist for Hawkwind was Lemmy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Lemmy killed, but right before, but Lemmy's band right before Motorhead was Hawkwind. And this is like a year after Lemmy had joined Hawkwind. They're getting dressed up like they're going to an astronaut's ball <laughs> to go see Lemmy, right? And as they're all waiting for the show, you can tell like mom and dad are a little bit uneasy. Mm-hmm. They're like, who are these people? Are they homeless? What's that smell, son? And Steven's like, oh, that's probably patchouli. You know, whatever. Uh, sure. And so whatever. They sit down. Then Hawkwind comes on and they put on this amazing show. Yeah, I bet. Just loud thrashing drums, a guitar and group of synthesizers just working at it. Mm-hmm. They even had a sax player, psychedelic light strobes, like a lot of light shows going on there. Voluptuous dancers stripping off what little they had on. Really? All in this like thunderous assault to the eyes and ears and Steven leaning over his seat and just soaking it all in. Yeah. And he was just so transfixed. And yeah, Steven's fucking dad sitting next to him wearing a suit. Why I never. Yeah, but Steven and Carrie was just so transfixed by everything, by every little bit of that show. And as as his parents and his little sister walked out during the whole dancer stripping down naked part, <laughs> Steven ran after them and said, well, that was good, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and the whole car ride home was just the four of them sitting in silence. <laughs> Complete silence. Well, what was the show that he uh, that his dad took him to? Oh, he uh, he took him to Count Basie and his orchestra. That's a great fucking show. Yeah, he was like, actually, I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, so. I'd still rather see Hawkwind. Yeah. But. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the last time. That was the last time he, he was allowed to go with his friends from then on. So a few weeks after Hawkwind, Steven was lucky enough to catch David fucking Bowie at Free Trade Hall, same place where everyone saw the Sex Pistols a few years later. Free Trade Hall is not that big. It's seeing Bowie in such a small venue that seems almost impossible. And Stephen Morris, of course, became a huge fan, mostly off the strength of Suffragette City. <laughs> Oh, don't lean on me, man, cause you ain't got time to check it. You know my suffering. 
you're listening to the drumming on both of those songs, like you, you're starting to hear like a pattern, like that. We'll get to that here in just a second. But okay. you start there's like there's a pattern forming with Stephen Morris. Now Stephen was inspired enough by Bowie to start a band of his own with his buddy Phil at the age of 15 or so. But even though they were planning on playing Hawkwind type music. They still gave themselves the wholesome name of Sunshine Valley Dance Band to, <laughs> to ease the booking process. What a great bait and switch. <laughs> but after Stephen found he had no talent as a guitarist, he settled on drums. But since drummers like Keith Moon were just too good to be a real influence at that point, he settled first on Mo Tucker of the Velvet Underground instead. From there, he moved on to more experimental drummers in the German Krautrock scene. Drummers like Jackie Liebezeit from Cannes and Klaus Dinger of New. And these bands were a natural progression from the Krautrock sound Hawkwind had on In Search of Space and Bowie somewhat had on Suffragette City. Here's New. New with a U. New with a U. Okay. And an explanation point. All in caps! <laughs> <laughs> a party mix <laughs> I'm into it well I mean that that song doesn't it doesn't have like the uh, you know the fucking crot rock beat you know that new usually has um, but it shows you like the experimental stuff that Steve Morse is getting into and it, it shows you how much music he played for the rest of Joy Division so like hey this shit's really cool we should be paying attention to this when we're checking out our sound now, in the early to mid-70s, when Stephen was coming of age, the hippie movement had reached its peak years before, and Stephen was sort of caught in that middle period between the free love of the 60s and the no-future nihilism of the late 70s. In other words, Morris was stuck in the hangover. And like a lot of kids at the time, he spent most of that hangover fucking up. Yeah, well, Stephen... Fucked you, up and fucking up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, like you said before, he was expelled from uh, King's Grammar School for doing drugs. Um, not there, but his friend ratted him out when his friend admitted to his family that they were doing LSD and mm. hot and all that kind of stuff. His friend just had just this moment of like, I need to come clean. And then Stephen uh. got expelled from that too. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then Stephen got sent to reform military school, but soon quit because he was already skipping school every day, like going to the bookstores and record stores all day. He actually went to Rare Records, still didn't run into Ian yet. <laughs> They're going to get there. Eventually. And once Stephen quit school, he had a lot of time on his hands, like hanging out all day at rock music festivals. <laughs> Why not? And at one festival in London, Stephen was approached by a group of hippies. 
right? Oh, you know how this is going to end up. <laughs> well, it's England, so I know it's not the Manson family, at least. <laughs> so one of the girls goes up to Stephen and is like, hey, you look a little bit lost. Are you looking for someone? And Stephen's like, no, I'm good. Then the girl pulls something out of her bag. And she's like, do you want one of our magazines? <laughs> oh, Kids, this which, is when you run. Which one is it? Well, he looked at it. And it was a comic that said something like, the devil hates sex. Uh, and Stephen recognized it, actually, because, you know, when he used to hang out in bookstores and record stores all day, he actually would peruse the magazine aisle. And he saw, he's like, oh, yeah, this is uh, from Moses David, I think. Yeah, I've read some of this stuff. I mean. Cute it, girl with a comic book approaching a guy alone. I know which cult this is. Yeah. So Stephen's like, cool, you're a cute girl. Do you have any drugs? <laughs> And then the hippies got even more interested in him because he realized he knew what the comic book was. He's on the hook, as yeah. it were. So they kept asking him a bunch of questions like, oh, where are you from? Are you alone? Do you want to come home with us? We know someone who has drugs. Mm. And Stephen had this like funny feeling about it. Mm -hmm. Oh, you don't say. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's just like, Stephen's like, okay, yeah, there's something going off in my radar. So he told him like, yeah, sure. I I'll meet up with you guys later. I got to go to the bathroom. And then one of them comes up and is like, I got to go too. I'll go with you. <sighs> and Steven's like, no. And he just like, <laughs> he literally like ran. He just ran away. He just bolted out of that festival and straight into the tube and went straight on home. And it later dawned on him that he was being recruited by the children of God cult. The children of God. <laughs> One of the most fucked up cults to ever exist. Last podcast, we had a three or four part series on them. Uh, they were fucking evil. Uh, also, a uh, small thing, uh, the Phoenix family, Joaquin and River Phoenix, their family were children of God followers left when they were kids. Yeah, yeah. And then they, that's why they changed their name to Phoenix. Their original last name, I think, was Bottom. Oh, well, that's a good change. Yeah. <laughs> good change. Good change. Good change. <laughs> so, yeah. So flirty. He almost got flirty fish. That's what they used to call it, is that they would send a cute girl out and uh, they would use the cutest girls around to hook guys and bring them uh, into the uh, the cult. So he got flirty fish that day. Oh, yeah. that's what happened. That's what happened. Well, luckily, Stephen was too smart for that. Luckily. <laughs> oh. A lot of people weren't. Although he did fall into another hippie commune a couple of days later. <laughs> Well, commune's different. But they were more, you know, it, it was like kind of dirty and there was no food to eat. So he went home. Yeah. You know, it was one of those. <laughs> <laughs> and so Stephen was stuck working for his uncle, then got fired from that. And his dad eventually, and he continued living at home with no real ambition other than just making enough money to spend on drugs, alcohol, drums, records, shows, and festivals. <laughs> and if not, then shoplifting and stealing booze from the parents it is. <laughs> you know, he he admits he was a snotty kid who only cared about having fun and trying to get a band going. But every time he auditioned for a band, they said that he played too loud and he was too rough around the edges and he was too weird. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, he was listening to all the weird shit. That's what he wanted to do. But... You know, he was fucking still practicing twice a day. It's not like he was bad. He was just different. He was waiting for something. And on August 28th, 1976, that something arrived on a TV show on Granada Television, which was a station specific to Northwest London. The show was called So It Goes. And the host, Tony Wilson, was just about to introduce the Sex Pistols to a regional audience that reached far beyond the gig Wilson had attended at Free Trade Hall about a month before. This is Tony Wilson. That album, Derek and Clyde by Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, will not be available from next week at W.H. Smith's EMI and Boots. It has a warning on it, and our final live band tonight also have a warning on them. One of the most reviewed and most reviled rock phenomenon of recent weeks. We got a few votes. 
Sex Pistols, you can hear them warming up in the background even now. And you know where it goes from there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what Tony Wilson said about the Sex Pistols that day? He said they were extremely badly behaved then. <laughs> but he enjoyed them. Of course he enjoyed it. I mean, if you, the uh, the performance, it's one of the best Sex Pistols performances there are. I mean, at least it's the one of the ones where they look the coolest. They all look super fucking cool. They sound cool. The, everything, like the Sex Pistols all came together yeah. that day. And Sid Vicious wasn't there to ruin it yet. <laughs> That is also true. Yeah, so Tony Wilson, he was a reporter on Granada Television. Granada? Granada, I think. I think Granada. Okay. I think, yeah. The, the, Granada. Yeah. Is that good? I think it's Gran- yeah, Granada, yeah. I, I think good enough for us. Granada. Uh, so Tony, yes. He was a local celebrity. He, you know, he was famous for being very witty on and off air. He was young, hip. You know, he got long hair a little bit. You know, he was a little posh, but also a little fun, down-to-earth kind of guy. You yeah, know? yeah, He would always hang around uh, musicians, check out their bands. He was always going to parties and events and, and dating new beautiful women. You know, someone said something about him I thought was great. Uh, Tony Wilson was everywhere. He'd go to an opening of an envelope. <laughs> that's that's Tony Wilson. Yeah. And while Tony was still working as a reporter on Granada, they let him host a half hour show on music and entertainment that started July 3rd, 1976, with Tom Waits performing live in studio. That's the same weekend the Ramones came to play England. This is all happening at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 76 Tom Waits, that's I think that's oh, that's closing time era, I believe. I don't know. <laughs> it might, might, might have been hard a Saturday night, but still, it's a great fucking time to see Tom Waits. It's a great time to put Tom Waits on the fucking TV. Right? Yeah. But before the show, like the So It Goes show was set to air and Tony was getting his new program together, he actually got two interesting pieces of mail. One was from a teenager named Patrick Stephen Morrissey, who sent him a sleeve <laughs> of the New York Dolls' first album with a letter that said, Please get this music like that on your show. <laughs> I don't Morrissey's think he, sick in his nose into everything. He didn't even send a disc. It was just a sleep, <laughs> by the way. Of course, he had to keep the record for himself. Yes. And the other piece of mail was from Howard DeVoto from the Buzzcocks, who sent Tony a tape with a letter that said, here's a new band from London. They're coming to Manchester on June 4th, and I think you'll like them. And that tape was of the Sex Pistols. Of course. Howard just, you remember, he just booked them at the Lesser Trade Hall, Mm -hmm. uh, that thing we talked about last time, (laughs) (laughs) which is why Tony Wilson went to see the gig that changed the world. Yeah. Uh, Or so he says, because no one remembers seeing him there, but he says he was there. So we'll just say he was there. We'll just say he was there. Yeah. I mean, he or maybe he was at the second one. Who cares? He, He was there eventually. Uh, either way, he booked the Sex Pistols to perform live a month later on his show. So that's what happens. So it goes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Tony Wilson, of course, like he's the main character in the, the movie 24 Hour Party People, right. which while it is, you know, wildly inaccurate historically, it's one of the funniest music biopics ever made. Yeah, it's exactly. Fucking, it's amazing. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And wildly inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy it. I enjoy I love it. It's such a it's such a funny movie. Now, concerning Stephen Morris. 
His compass began to point directly toward Punk after seeing the Sex Pistols on TV, but it was still about a year before he hooked up with Warsaw. When he finally did, it was through an ad placed at a music shop in Macclesfield. It said, Drummer wanted for local new wave band, Warsaw. Phone Ian. And then it had Ian's number. So Steve called up, met Ian, and basically said, I got some drums and I think I can play them. (laughs) (laughs) That works. (laughs) And after discovering they were both into Bowie, the Velvets, the Dolls, Iggy, and Burroughs, Stephen was invited for an audition. He had an interview before the audition. It was very cute. Now, Stephen had never really fit in with a band before, but with the band then known as Warsaw, he clicked immediately. And with that, the band finalized the lineup that would eventually be named Joy Division. So after playing a few gigs together, Warsaw played the Electric Circus on the legendary club's final weekend, just as the venue had fully established itself as the place to see punk in Manchester. Yeah, they were closing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's the thing. The Electric Circus was, the remembered, the first venue that the Stiff Kittens slash Warsaw slash Joy Division ever played. Yeah. But they were getting shut down after only a year of being open because it was a massive fire hazard. It was riddled <laughs> with tons of safety violations. It, it was a dumpy place with crappy beer and the dirtiest toilets in Manchester. But they loved that place. Yeah, of course. Everyone has that place. Yeah, everyone has that place. Yeah, ours was Space 1110 in Lubbock. It was a wonderful place. <laughs> yeah, it was a huge fire hazard. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we saw some amazing shows there, though. And played some amazing shows there. It was oh. a great fucking place. I miss it forever. So. <laughs> <laughs> we, but no, it's, we all had that place. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. that's true. Every town has that place. So on the last days of the Electric Circus, the, the venue arranged a, a weekend of marathon shows on October 1st and 2nd with the drones headlining on Saturday and the Buscocks headlining on Sunday. And it was a big turnout. Like all every band from around the area desperately wanted to play that weekend. It, it seemed like a local historical moment. Yeah. And so naturally, Warsaw wanted to play on that show. So they headed over there, but they couldn't even get in through the door. That's how crazy the show was. Like Ian and the door guy were at it at each other's throats. They're just having like a massive verbal fight outside while 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 people are like waiting in line to trying to get in. And Ian's just yelling at this guy. He's like, Richard Boone said that we could play here right now. And there's like, well, you're not on the list and you're not on the bill. He's like, well, let me in so I can talk to him. And he's like, well, you're on the list, so no. And it went on that for a while, so much that they got tired of arguing that they went to the pub next door and had a few rounds and then went back to argue some more. <laughs> They got tired. <laughs> Ian Curtis had a temper. Yes. He absolutely, we'll get into it more and more, but Ian Curtis had a fucking temper. Very much so, especially if he felt like he deserved something or there was something that wasn't right. Yeah. That he would lose his mind until he could get what he wanted. And so, bit this of a is, Karen. This is what he wanted. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, someone from the venue told the band, okay, come back tomorrow and we'll squeeze you in. So they came back the next night and had another fight. But. They actually got themselves on the bill. I think that the reason why they got so much trouble is because the drones were headlining the night before and the drones, they they didn't like each other. Mm -hmm. So they're like, yeah, you're not going on. But luckily, the Buscocks are cool, right? And they're headlining that night. So Buscocks were their friends. Exactly. Well, kind (laughs) of. Well, yeah, like Warsaw at this point was like the Buscocks annoying little brother. Yeah. Yeah, like like, you'll help them out. But God, okay. All right, come on. Come on. (laughs) So they told Warsaw, okay, 
You guys can go on. You're playing three songs and you have to go on first, which means you have to set up now and go on like in a few minutes <laughs> from now. So Ian, Peter and Bernard and Steve and Terry, their head roadie, remember, quickly ran to get their equipment and, and everything set up. They had two minutes or they won't play at all. So they're scrambling and the sound guy goes up to Steven while they're all running around and he's like telling Steven's like, okay, how many mics do you need? And Steven's like, um, two. Yes, one for Ian and one for Peter who does the backing vocals. And the sound guy goes, okay, well, the next band needs three so you're getting three. Oh, okay why did you ask never mind never mind we're going on in a minute so the band goes on and after they play their first song you know warsaw mm-hmm. uh, and about to play the second bernard goes up to the mic you know his mic the third mic and yells you all forgot rudolph hess and then confused silence for yeah, a second of course the, what the fuck does that mean the audience were just looking around like that exactly what the fuck does that mean <laughs> Even the band took a second. Rudolph has the Nazi. Yes. And then they just went into their second song. It was so weird. Afterwards, they asked Bernard, like, why did you say that? And Bernard just responded with, I don't know. It just felt like saying it. I mean, both Ian and Bernard, remember, they were reading this book, The Loneliest Man in the World, about Rudolf Hess, who hmm. was a big-time Nazi. He was one of Hitler's guys. Yeah. Until did Ru- you just describe Rudolf Hess as one of Hitler's guys? Yes. <laughs> You're my guy. You're my number, number one. Number one. A guy. Hi. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but Rudolf went rogue when he thought he... He was like, I know how to win the war. I'm not going to listen to Hitler. And I, I'm going to take this plane and fly to Scotland to broker a peace treaty with England. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was captured doing that, of, of course. course. And in so many words, spent the rest of his life in Spandau, uh, a Berlin prison after being convicted in the Nuremberg trials. Yeah. So the book was written about him by a former guard at that prison uh, who sympathized with Rudolf, who was the only Nazi left in the prison, but now was just an old and sickly man by then and tried to kill himself many times. Yeah, every other Nazi got fucking executed. Yes. What or, few or, or, Nazis went there? A, a, a few of them actually got uh, released because they were super old and sick. Yeah. And Rudolph was the the only the last one left. And uh, he did finally succeed in committing suicide, though. Or so they think. Oh, good for 1987. him. 1987. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Bernard, that was still weird, Bernard. <laughs> it's, it's weird. I mean, we don't know if this is just revisionist thinking, but Bernard might have meant that Rudolf Hess was acting as a scapegoat for all of the hundreds of thousands of Nazis complicit in the murder of millions who were going free. Uh, And this was a fact that Britain was willfully ignoring. You know, that's one of the big criticisms of the Nuremberg trial is that there were, I think, 800,000 people in the SS. Insane amount. Like, there were insane amount of Nazis and very few of them actually paid for what they did. But since Bernard was just a kid in a punk band screaming into a microphone... That didn't really read the nuance of that opinion. Right. And it could also just be a shitty kid screaming something shitty without thinking about it too hard. It's probably that. It's probably that. Yeah. Now, this whole somewhat confusing incident might have been forgotten forever. But on that night, Richard Branson's Virgin Records were there to record the show so (laughs) they could release it later as an album. And Warsaw's performance was released, Rudolph Hess and all. Y'all forgot Rudolph Hess.
they're getting better. They're getting better. <laughs> they are. They're really, you can really, that's the funny thing about um, Joy Division is that they're one of those bands where there are uh, things recorded at so many different stages in their career. And it's uh, amazing, especially because it's a fantastically short career, but you can really hear the progression of the band all throughout. And that's wonderful and fascinating. <laughs> And it's just a little side note here to let you know how many great bands there were in Manchester. The night of the Electric Circus show that Warsaw played, that was also the debut of Howard DeVoto's new band, After the Buzzcocks. They were called Magazine. And they were fucking great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stephen Morris in the band, it seemed like things would come together for Warsaw. But instead, Warsaw stalled. While other local bands like Slaughter and the Dogs and especially the Buzzcocks were taking off. Yeah, well, I mean, they felt stagnant because as a band, everyone else was, like you said, they were doing great. They were moving forward. and But they had to stop and take a break because they had to get a new drummer. And they also couldn't get booked for gigs and they, they because no one really liked them very much <laughs> as people. They felt excluded from the community, especially. Uh, yeah, it's not that no one liked them as a band. No one liked them as people. They were kind of shitty. Well, yes. Like you said, <laughs> like the Buzzcocks, they weren't close friends with them, but at least they were opening and welcoming to them. But. At the same time, and I, I know the uh, Joy Division said this later, the Buzzcocks didn't really crave our company. <laughs> you know what I mean? They were just nice to us. Um, they were very aggressive and annoying as young guys. And, and and they also said, like, yeah, we were very working class. Like, we didn't fit in well with a lot of these college kids and these already seen kids. Uh, we didn't network and hang out at every show like some people did. We had serious day jobs and, and bills and rehearsals. Like, they did. They had a lot of stuff to work on just within themselves. I mean, they, they were serious about the band so they figured let's take a moment to reassess what we got to do here i mean yeah it's they were very serious of course but they were also yeah i mean when you say like working class like there were like art kids around there were like much more serious kids around while joy division were fucking throwing toilets into other bands fucking practice spaces (laughs) (laughs) like like they were yeah they were like that at one practice space they had they let a toilet that was full of shit down on a rope and swung it back and forth until it smashed through the window of the fucking practice space below them. <laughs> They're like, it took us a while to fill that bowl. 
<laughs> really appreciate the amount of energy and effort we, we put into that. <laughs> well, to jumpstart things, the band took a small break from gigs, reworked their sound, and got ready to record an EP featuring their new material, mostly because the bands they didn't like, such as Slaughter and the Dogs, were recording EPs as well. <laughs> so we got to do one yeah, too. Yeah, we got to do one too because these assholes are fucking doing one. But since the band didn't have any money, they got a little creative with funding and took a gamble on debt. Well, yeah, because Ian and Debbie, they couldn't ask money from their parents because no, that's why. No. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so they went to their bank and they talked to their bank manager into loaning them 400 pounds to buy dining room furniture. You're making quote air quotes right now, but the, the people can't like, see the air quotes. I feel quotes. like that goes in. That goes in through the machine. Uh, yes, they're like, yes, we're buying dining room furniture. Yeah. I'm winking. Yeah. Does that work? <laughs> uh, and that loan was taken from Debbie and Ian's uh, joint bank account, and the rest of the band had to pay their share in installments, but they figured, okay, now we have the money. Now yeah. we can do this. We can do it. So with 400 pounds in their pocket, the band went into Pennine Sound Studios in Oldham to record an ideal for living, which, for the first time, showed the promise of what the band would eventually become. Three, five, oh, one, two, five, go! I was there in the backstage When this light came around I grew up not a changeling But when the first time around I can see all the weakness I can pick all the faults But I can see all the faintness Just a stick in your throat P1G 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 Hung around in your soundtrack To mirror all the you've done You know that 350125GO? You know what that is? What? Rudolf Hess's prisoner number. Ah. <laughs> well, you I know. wondered for years what the fuck that was. <laughs> what was that? You know, yeah, it was it was Rudolf Hess's prisoner number. But if you're just the only prisoner, can't you just get like one? <laughs> well, there were more at one point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> now, an ideal for living had a couple of great fucking songs on it. It had four songs. Two classics. But from the very beginning, this project was filled with problem after problem, some of which were the band's fault, some of which weren't. First of all, the neck on Peter Hook's bass was warped enough where it couldn't physically stay in tune, which means that Peter Hook's bass was not necessarily what you'd call in perfect pitch for the recording. It was out of tune the whole fucking time. They couldn't keep it in tune. But even so, Peter Hook is also completely tone deaf. Yeah. <laughs> Which meant that he could barely even tell if it was out of tune. And Bernard always had to tune up Peter's bass for him. I know, smiling like an asshole. <laughs> I know how to do it. Oh, I got to do it again, huh? Oh, does Peter need me to tune his bass again? 
<laughs> I mean, and that is, you know, one of the complaints that people have about Joy Division is like, oh, they can't play their fucking instruments, man. It's like, well, they're doing the best they can. They're doing the best they they're can. They're doing the best they can. And sometimes not being able to play your instrument perfectly is what creates new shit. In addition to that, the band didn't really know the ins and outs of mixing. And even though the recording was done at a bargain basement studio, the band still thought that, man, the studio is going to do everything. And they just told the engineer on their way out, make it sound like a cross between Bowie's Low and Iggy's The Idiot. And the guys probably didn't hear them. <laughs> yeah, and, sure, whatever. Yeah, and even if he did hear them, what the fuck is he going to do? He's like, why don't you guys try that? <laughs> Why don't you guys go to Hansa Studios and, <laughs> and figure that shit out? No, I mean, but I also get it. Like one time when I was like recording an, an EP, I told the engineer like, yeah, make it sound like Funhouse. Like just oh. make it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Do the thing that they did on Funhouse. Do the Funhouse thing. Push the Funhouse button. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't end up. Sound- he indulged me. Like he, well, he, he was very, I mean, he did say like, yeah, okay, I'll do that. It didn't sound like Funhouse. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> But even with the further problems that we'll discuss in a minute, Joy Division sound nevertheless changed with this EP, and one needs to look no further than the song No Love Lost for proof of this. So long, sitting here, in the water, waiting for the tick to run. We've been moving around in different situations Knowing that the time would come Just to see you torn apart Witness the RFT hunt I need it I need it I need it Through the wire screen The eyes of those standing outside looked in at her As into the cage of some rare creature in the in the hand of one of the assistants, she saw the same instrument as they had that morning inserted deep into her body. She shuddered instinctively. No life at all in the house of dolls. No, 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 Tasty kraut rock right there. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. I, I like it. I, I like all of it. I, I know they're just, I think maybe it's because they're just a bunch of kids yeah. who are just trying to stay away from the factory job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were talking about this yesterday is that, you know, Joy Division, they truly are, they're a, a bunch of kids who rewrote their own destiny. Yeah. And, and that's why we respect them so much, you know, and they just eventually came upon uh, something um, new. Yeah. Like they just they, use it. They, they use their influence. They themselves onto making this happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. But what was truly consequential for the band was that spoken word part, which directly informed the choice the band made next when it came to the inevitable name change from Warsaw to Joy Division. Yeah, because there was another band in London called Warsaw Pact. And the Warsaw Pact, they famously did like a 24-hour record, uh, the, their LP Needle Time uh, in November 1977. Uh, this was a like a weird promotional thing that they did with Island Records. It was where, a stunt. Yes, the album was recorded, mastered, produced, and packaged and distributed all in one day, 24-hour record, right? And it was all over the news and they were really, really big for about a week. <laughs> then they petered off and broke up 
a year later. But now at this time, they're really, this is the week yeah. that they're really well known in London. And the guys in Warsaw knew like they had to change their name to avoid confusion. So that way they can also get booked in London because they wanted to get out of Manchester and, and do their shows there too. Of course. No, I, I mean, so they just, they can't be Warsaw anymore. Now the band tried on a few other awful names like uh, Slaves of Venus, the Out of Town Torpedoes. That one I like. <laughs> it's terrible. It's too long. And worst of all was Boys of Bondage. That's already a really fun misunderstanding. (laughs) But the obvious choice came from a book called House of Dolls, which was the novel Ian Curtis was reading from in No Love Lost. Now, House of Dolls has in and of itself a fascinating history. Supposedly based on what had happened to the author's sisters in Auschwitz, the book itself described horrific stories of the so-called brothel located in Auschwitz. What's fucked up, though, is that this novel was actually the inspiration for one of the most bizarre subgenres of literature to ever exist. Going off House of Dolls, Israel specifically was flooded with pornographic Nazi exploitation Holocaust novels known as Stalags. Now, these books almost never included Jewish prisoners. Instead, they involved allied soldiers being sexually brutalized by female SS guards, and eventually those soldiers would take revenge by raping and murdering their tormentors. These books, with titles like I Was Colonel Schultz's Bitch, were particularly popular amongst the children of concentration camp survivors who did not yet know the full extent of the actual horrors that their parents survived. Look this shit up. It's a fascinating history. It's insane. But it all of this is true. But the book that inspired the whole craze, House of Dolls, had made it out of Israel and into the hands of Ian Curtis. House of Dolls was the one that was not as lurid. House of Dolls is still taught in uh, Israeli high schools yeah. today. Like, it's not as lurid, but some people do criticize it for being lurid, and it definitely inspired a lot of lewdness. In House of Dolls, Jewish women were forced to have sex with Nazi officers and non-Jewish prisoners who cooperated with the Nazis. In German, these brothels that existed in occupied countries all across Europe were called Fraudenabteilung. In English, Fraudenabteilung loosely translates to Joy Division. Ah, I see see now. I see why. It's all there. It's all there. Now, that's a pretty clear connection to Nazism. Yeah. Perhaps the most blatant yet of all the punks we've covered who had a bit of a thing for the time period. I think this might be the fifth time we've talked about this. Yeah, I know. We keep going back. Now, what partly explains this is that everyone in England was obsessed with the war. In fact, Bernard Sumner's grandparents had a bomb shelter full of gas masks, tin helmets, and old radio sets from the war. And they couldn't shut up about it, his grandparents. But as Bernard somewhat inelegantly put it in The Last Electric Circus Show, they all forgot about Rudolf Hess. Yes, they'd talk about the war constantly, but only about the Battle of Britain, or the air raids, or Winston Churchill, or the resolve of the British people. Nobody talked about the true horrors committed by the Nazis, the concentration camps, the Einsatzgruppen, the sterilizations, the mass rape, the casual murder, and all of this, all this horrible shit, that's what these guys were keyed into. See, the boys at Joy Division were no more Nazis than any of the other guys that we've already talked about. But as opposed to, say, Didi Ramon or Scott Ashton of the Stooges, Joy Division were not obsessed with the Luftwaffe or the aesthetics. Instead, Joy Division was obsessed with with the Holocaust. 
and speaking as two people who traveled all the way to Poland last year to visit Auschwitz. Carolina's idea, by the it way. It was. <laughs> we can certainly relate. I Yes, we were planning a vacation and, <laughs> and I said, why don't we go there? But it was. And I said, I love you. Let's get married. Yeah. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was a way to, uh, to, 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 to see something that's a uh, part of history, even, you know, to put yourself in there. Of course. And man, it was somber. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was not much of a vacation. Somber. We smelled something burning. It was scary. It was, we, it was scary. There yeah. were ghosts. We have there a were whole, ghosts. We have a whole story about Joseph Mengele's lap. There's, yeah. <laughs> is, but it was insane. It was, but I wouldn't have traded that experience for anything. Yeah. It's morbid uh, fascination. Yeah. But also, you know, a fascination with history. See, Joy Division weren't necessarily into wearing T-shirts with big swastikas like Sid Vicious. Oh, you know, they dabbled in it. But instead, it seems like they were more fascinated with the emotional side of the war. Because there's not really an event in world history that's more emotional than the Holocaust. But since Joy Division were still punks, and punks were all about being shocking, they took a more artistic approach to upset people rather than just wearing swastikas like an idiot. And their fixation manifested itself in a variety of ways. Once they had the name, the band made yet another questionable decision when it came to associating themselves with Nazi imagery, doubling down for the cover of their EP, An Ideal for Living, which is about to come with a whole new set of headaches. I know. It, this is one of those things where uh, I, I, you read in their books and they're always saying, in hindsight. <laughs> You know, looking back. Looking back, yeah. If I were to do it again, there's a lot of those sentences, yeah. in, in, you know, sprinkled throughout the book. Because yeah. uh, Bernard, you know, he was the graphic artist of the group. And he looked around uh, the Manchester Central Library for, for ideas for graphic images. And, and he found an image of a Hitler youth drummer hitting a big drum, like slung around his neck. And it struck Bernard, like as a very powerful image that blended well with their new name and sound. Hmm. That's how we saw it. He's like, this is something that will grab you. And this is what we want on the cover of our EP. And Bernard knew even back then that it was a controversial idea to use this. But he thought, fuck it, it's meant to be controversial. That's punk, upsetting your parents. Yeah. That's the whole point. So here we go. <laughs> Bernard traced the image with a pencil, inked it to a piece of paper, and made copies for for the whole sleeve for yeah. the EP. And put Joy Division in an uh, old English Nazi-looking typeface. Yeah. Okay, so it gets worse. <laughs> the paper was folded into four, so there was room for, like, you know, interior photos. That, so he photocopied these photos on it. Like, there was one of a black and white photo of a Nazi foot soldier pointing his gun at a small Jewish child whose hands are raised up. This looks bad. It, lo it all looks terrible. And then a couple photos of the band with Bernard looking like he stepped out of a Hitler youth camp. <laughs> and, and then there's Peter's mustache. <laughs> oh, God. This, it doesn't get any worse. <laughs> and then next to the photos, it says, like, this is not a concept EP. It is an enigma. All complaints to Terry Mason. Because <laughs> Enigma was the name of their made-up record that they, they they used to release this EP for, mm -hmm. from, you know. And what Terry was, did say about the artwork, he did say it, it just kind of manifests all into this one thing. It does seem like a stupid thing to do. <laughs> and Bernard said, well, you know, this is our way to express ourselves because we were reading all this stuff. We thought it was very fascinating. Yeah. Obviously, we are not Nazis. None of us believe in that. We don't sympathize. We actually assume that everyone knew that all Nazis are bad. We yeah. didn't realize that this was a, <laughs> this is a take that we had to take. Well, at that point, it was right. 
Like at that point in in British history, uh, the, I don't think they were quite uh, stupid for for thinking that all not that everyone assumed that all Nazis were bad. But this was also when the National Front was starting to make a come. Like that's when the National Front was starting to rise. Uh, and so I I get where he's coming from when he's saying like, yeah, you know, I we figured no everyone would assume that we were being ironic uh, with all this, but still a really fucking stupid idea. <laughs> <laughs> It's <laughs> like still really dumb. But sometimes yeah. it's what gets you there, I yeah, guess. Yeah, it's, it's, it's what gets you there. And yeah, and, and then when they released it, everyone was like, I don't like this. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, this isn't, like, you're going to call your band what? Joy Div- Oh, okay. <laughs> but before the EP was even released, Terry Mason, who was still kind of sort of acting as manager, decided to send out demo tapes to a bunch of record companies to drum up interest. And in typical form, he fucked it up royally. Yeah, uh, Terry, ha- you know the definition of you had one job. <laughs> yeah, so they had a tape of the recording, so they gave to Terry and they're like, this is your job make copies to send out to recording companies. Okay, perfect. So one early morning, Stephen and Terry called in sick from their jobs and together they took a train to London with a bunch of cassette tapes that Terry made and a press release that Stephen typed up. And along with them, they had a, a list of addresses and names of record companies to go to because they figured we got to go there. We got we to gotta show up because if we just mail it to them, maybe they, they won't even like listen to it. They might yeah. not even open it. So Stephen and Terry... Okay, cue the montage, right? (laughs) They went to Virgin, they went to United Artists, they went to Polydor, they went to EMI, CBS, all of them. With and it was just a bunch of doors being like, "No thanks, closing." Uh, Oh, he's not here. Come back later, or uh, sure, just drop it off and I'll give it a listen. You know, just Mm -hmm. leaving it with the secretary sometimes. Yeah. Uh, They actually, while they were doing that, when they were doing their rounds, they saw the famous graffiti thing that some fans spray painted on that said like wise up what a record company and mm-hmm. signed the banshees mm-hmm. remember oh, like, that's cool yeah it was uh Susie sue and the banshees uh they, they had uh like it was a weird promotional thing i think a bunch of fans did where they started spray painting graffiti all over every single building of recording companies all around town that's cool all the bands that yeah all the recording companies that were not getting hip to punk that's great yeah yeah, yeah. well banshees were actually eventually signed uh by polydor in uh, in june that mm-hmm. year so but and steven saw that and he's like does anyone have a pen? I want to put Ed Joy Division. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't have a pen. Yeah. So a little while later, uh, this is like a few days later, the rejection letters start coming in. They're pouring in, really. <laughs> uh, it's all uh, like not what we're looking for. Try again 10 years later. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> really need to work on this. And then, But they got this one nice letter from Radar Records that said it was, well, it's a no, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, maybe send further recordings that you might make. We want to hear them. And mm-hmm. they also sent back the copy of the tape. And they were disappointed. They felt a little dejected by all this. But so they took the tape and they, they, they put it in the player and they put it on and, and they heard the song okay, but it was a little muffled. Mm-hmm. It was actually very muffled. And then they heard a noise and clattering of plates and like forks and knives. <laughs> and, then, and then the theme music to Coronation Street went on <laughs> and then whistling in the background and Terry's mom yelling, Terry, your tea is ready. <laughs> what the fuck? What the fuck? What happened, Terry? And Terry said like, well, I made the copies. And they're like, what? what? What did you do? Exactly. Sit us through this. And Terry's like, well, it's a long process. So I sat on the couch watching TV and I got one tape recorder here with a speaker on it and another with a microphone. And I just hold the microphone near the speaker as it records. So I make the copies at home. <laughs> with the TV on. <laughs> While his mom's making tea. 
What a fucking idiot. And then Ian, Bernard, and Peter are like, that's what we sent to every record company in the recording industry. No, I'm not. Terry, no, I'm not crying. No, it's okay, Terry. Terry, how about you go around the shop and be vice president of alcoholic beverages? I need to process this. It was fucking embarrassing. Well, that's the thing is that even the fucking records sounded like shit. <laughs> Terry didn't make it better. Yeah, Terry didn't make it any better. And the record already sounded like shit because, you know, they didn't know what they were doing. And when it came to production, they pressed their songs on a seven inch record when they should have used a 12 inch record. Now, this might not sound like a big deal, but what that meant was that, you know, how a record works is, you know, a turntable goes, record turns, and the needle uh, goes onto the grooves of the record, and it turns those grooves into music. But because they put songs meant for a 12-inch record on a 7-inch, that meant that the grooves were too narrow. Yeah, as, they're closer together. They're closer together. And as a result, the record sounded like absolute tinny garbage unless you turned up your stereo all the way. Yeah, I can't believe this is happening again. <laughs> because they finally get their shipment of all the EPs, all the uh -huh. vitals, right? And uh -huh. then they play it at home and they're like, you can't hear anything, it's titty, unless you pull it all the way up. So they figured, okay, why don't we use like a better sound system? Maybe it's our stereo, yeah. Exactly, so they grab the EP and they run over to Pip's Disco and they hand it to the DJ because they're having a little party there. And they said, hey, can you play this? It's new and it's from our band and we're trying to settle a debate here. <laughs> <laughs> so the DJ puts it on and about halfway through the song the dance floor just cleared out <sighs> so the dj had to stop the ep take it out hand it back to the guys said sorry and then put on a song by the clash that everyone just started dancing to all over again <laughs> so this cues to the four guys and terry yeah standing there in horror as people dance to the clash in the middle of a 1970s dance club and it's just fading into black <laughs> because that's how they were feeling because they bought all these records all a thousand copies of this on discount when mm. they recorded it they had to find a way to make money off them because remember they have a loan to pay off they have a 400 pound loan they gambled on this and they lost <sighs> so they all went to steven's house and they sat in the living room as they quietly stuffed the eps with Bernard's Hitler Youth artwork <laughs> into plastic sandwich bags, and still, and they still tried to sell them at record stores, or at least leave them with promoters as mm -hmm. a calling card, since they figured, oh, promoters, no, they never listen to, to to these like EPs anyways, and maybe they'll just know how to get in touch with us or something. Uh, maybe they'll be impressed with Bernard's artwork. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> like that could help. Yeah. And in the end, they ended up just giving them away or just selling them for drinks or anything. They still had hundreds left. Over. They worked so hard and tried to get by with whatever little money they had, spending a year rehearsing and playing in dingy clubs to sometimes just one person and their dog, taking out a loan, gambling on their future, and that's with working full-time hours at their day jobs, and they had nothing to show for it. And another piece of bad news. <laughs> Enigma was already the name of an American record company. That so they had to change that too. <laughs> it just it, oh, it was terrible. God. And that uh, by the way, that record now, even though it sounds like shit, can't really hear it uh, on Discogs. That original Joy Division Ideal for Living EP, 
the highest price that it's gone for is $4,666. Jesus! <laughs> it averages about $2,000 per copy, <laughs> even though you can't fucking listen to it. And it's all because they screwed up so bad every step of the way. <laughs> this is amazing. It's amazing, yeah. Now, after the initial failure of the EP, because eventually they did re-release it and, and it, you know, and people loved it because there's- On a 12-inch. On a 12-inch. They did they eventually re-release it the right way. But after that initial failure, the band went through a bit of a low point. Using it as an opportunity once more, though, they reassessed what their sound should be. But what eventually became the Joy Division sound came again by accident. See, Peter Hook had just bought a speaker from his old art teacher, and the combination of the new speaker and Peter's old Sound City amp was fucking terrible. From what they said, the low notes sounded farty and couldn't be heard over Barney's guitar. So in order to be heard, Peter Hook started playing the high notes on the bass at the far end of the neck. And with that, the Joy Division sound was born, once again, out of necessity. on the base there is <laughs> but it works <laughs> it works wonderfully and so, we'll get into the story behind that song on the next episode it's a heartbreaking story but yes it's very good at this point okay so this is this is the point where they are right now they're rehearsing twice a week wednesdays after work for two hours and then sunday for three hours right so this time they're finally at tj davidson's warehouse tj davidson being like a guy they knew whose family was well off and he owned this warehouse that just sat there doing nothing so they they let bands practice there including joy division it's great yeah but it was also a nasty place with dead rats in the toilet smashed windows no heating always cold it's a fucking dump yeah (laughs) (laughs) and they had to play in their winter coats because it was like sitting in a refrigerator all day and and one time they were so cold they they swept up all the debris on the floor and just lit a small fire to stay warm yeah you kind of like this studio right now (laughs) they had a uh, space heater that ian would sit on between songs uh and he sat on it so much that he developed hemorrhoids (laughs) (laughs) it can happen (laughs) but it was while they were there in that freezing cold 
warehouse that they're trying to get their music to progress where they where they started their you know their new house of songs you know Stephen and Peter they would start with the rhythm drumming and bass and they would just start playing around with it trying to find something right and then Ian would go through his lyrics all in because he would have like a like a plastic shopping bag stuffed with like just tons of papers and he'd start pulling them out and start going through them and just mumbling along to the music you know because Peter already stepped away from writing lyrics about girls who heard him <laughs> he already knew that he was not even nearly as sophisticated as Ian was with with his writing well he knew from the very even in like the early days when you know they played his songs they were okay but when they played Ian's songs they were fucking great exactly but- so now that's Ian's job so Ian would pull out a page or two. He starts mumbling the words, also scribbling on the paper to make them fit. Then Bernard would hit on a riff or come up with a melody. And they, they just started working together that way. And sometimes they would have to take a break. Yes, have a Coke, smoke a cigarette, whatever you need, chat. And then go back into it and do it better. And Ian would conduct this whole thing like an orchestra. He would be like, okay, you know that thing where you do the, the, the chugga chugga with thing? Yeah. Yes, okay, you do that, that riff, and then the dum dum riff right here, and and then another chugga chugga get everyone, all right? And then I'll come in. Everyone got that? Okay, let's do it. Yeah. And so Ian, that's the thing. Ian had a great ear, and he could always find the hook or, or the right riff for the song. And they would record this like on a tape recorder sometimes, so Ian could take home and like finalize the lyrics even better. They were finally working on all the songs diligently and collaborating together. Yeah. As a unit, like it took a while, but they finally became a cohesive unit, like a real band. They finally became Joy Division. Yeah. Some people say that like that was Ian Curtis's biggest contribution to the band. Uh, was that he was the one that could pull all the songs together. Like he was the one that you know when Peter Hook started playing high on his bass to be heard Ian Curtis was on it was like keep doing that like that's fucking great that sounds awesome <laughs> like that's really cool like keep doing that so he was he was the person who kept it all together yeah you know yeah they wrote this uh all together it really is not just one or the other no even though you know Peter might come up with something on his own but it's because of Ian's direction that they're going the song in a different way so yeah. they all really truly needed each other yeah and they're doing all this in a cold dank industrial space you know where they're having to burn trash to stay warm I mean they've got the sound they've got the atmosphere and with the band motivated Joy Division was well on their way to recording their groundbreaking debut Unknown Pleasures <laughs> which we'll cover at length on episode three. Yeah, I know. We're going, to, this is going to be a while. <laughs> We're getting there. There's a lot there. There's so there's so much to this story. And there's so much information about it. Like for this episode, like we brought in a new source. Yeah, we brought in two new sources. Actually. Ah, yeah. Uh, Record, Play, Pause by Stephen Morris, a new book that came out last year. And uh, Tony Wilson, You're Entitled to an Opinion, dot, 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 <laughs> by Dave Nolan. <laughs> this is a story about Tony Wilson and, and you know, yeah. Factory and all that stuff that we're going to get into in the next uh, in the next series. Of course. Yeah. We're yeah, getting into yeah, Factory Records, Martin Hannett. He's about to show up. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, if you enjoy the music on uh, this episode, remember that uh, we do a playlist uh, for every single episode uh, on Spotify. If you just you know type in No Dogs in Space, uh, the playlists come up. Uh, you can also type in my name. It's on my personal profile. Um, not every single song uh, that we played in this episode is going to be on the playlist, but most of them will be. Uh, and also, if you want your own No Dogs in Space t-shirt, yeah. we got fucking kick-ass t-shirts over 
at lastpodcastmerch.com. Uh, it's a variation on our logo uh, done by Matt Wise, who uh, fucking also designed our logo and designed these t-shirts. They're fucking yes. great. No, they're awesome. You can wear a picture of our dog <laughs> little, wherever you go. Oh, little Georgie. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and our band for this week. Uh, of course, all of you have been sending in fucking amazing bands. And also, thanks, everyone, for sending in recommendations on how to get into the fall. But uh, in true form, uh, every email gives me three different albums to listen to. We got like three dozen emails. <laughs> and they're all completely different. Oh, God th- bless you. Th- this is why it's impossible to get into the fall. Because <laughs> every fall fan. It's like he has... Marky Smith had like... He put out 30 LPs. There's so much. But... Our band this week uh, was one of one of the people who uh, sent some recommendations for the fall, and I might take his recommendations because I really uh, enjoy this band. Uh, they're called uh, Keepers. They're out of San Diego, California. Uh, it's death punk. Uh, they've got uh, their they've got a Bandcamp page. It's uh, Keepers six one nine bandcamp.com they've got a bunch of stuff on spotify as well and the song that we're going to be playing right now is off of their new ep called i it's really fucking cool the song is called no rings oh okay so, so if uh you guys want to uh send us your band no dogs in space at gmail.com yes. is the place to send it please do uh, or if you're a solo artist or you're just a person that makes noise <laughs> yeah. please send it to us on the, you can send us a link a YouTube or or what, whatever you got uh, or let us know where you are on Spotify or Bandcamp uh, we, we would love to play your song we'd love to alright see y'all next week goodbye Thanks. here's Keepers bye bye
This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.